Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome again to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today's case is probably one of Canada's most notorious murders, and no, it is not Luca Magnotta or the Greyhound bus beheading. It's an older case, but it's very interesting because there are many twists and turns and updates. It's kind of the case that has kept on giving for 50 years, and unless you are old like me, you probably haven't heard it. And since it's old, when I talk about money, just take the amount that I talk about and quadrillion it to get to today's money standards. This is the murder of Christine Demeter. Christine was born Christina Ferrari in Austria in 1940, the only child of a professional soccer player and his wife. Although being sent to a strict Catholic school, she had a more adventurous spirit. In fact, she got married at 16, much to her parents' chagrin, and a year later gave birth to a son named Martin. Being five foot nine and very beautiful, she was able to find work as a model. After seven years of marriage, she called it quits with her husband and in 1963 moved to Vienna. Christine never really made the top supermodel status, but she did meet a lot of wealthy men and dated for a time a movie director. And on the set of one of his movies, she met a handsome Hungarian living in Canada named Peter Demeter. Peter was a wealthy real estate developer living in Toronto, but he hadn't always been that way. Born in Budapest in April of 1933 in a middle-class home, the war did a bit of a number on his family. His father was killed in a bombing and and his brother had been killed in the military service against the Nazis. He and his friend Shaba Salagi, whom we are definitely going to come back to later, escaped to Vienna where he got a job working for Radio Free Europe. Always having a head for business, he moved in 1957 to Toronto, where he worked numerous jobs, scrimping and saving every penny, and eventually getting his real estate license and then saving enough money to develop his first property. Christine and Peter had a whirlwind romance traveling around Europe and quickly convinced her to move to Canada with him. They married and moved into 1437 Dundas Crescent, which was in a swanky part of Mississauga. Interesting fact about this house, lots of people have died in it. Built on a two-acre plot, originally a cottage-style single-story clapboard house with a circular driveway, there have been additions over the years, including a mini pharmacy that was added on by the home's original owner, Dr. Beaumont Dixie, who moved into the house in 1846. He and his wife lived there with their six children, Four of the children died in the home and on different days, but all in 1953 from diphtheria. And Anna, his wife, died there in 1867. Dr. Dixon then remarried Elizabeth Blakely. Elizabeth's daughter Bertha lived there until 1951 when she also died in the home. After the events of today's story, it was most certainly haunted. But it burned down in 1983, which we will also get to later, and was torn down. 
After moving into the house, which by this time had a backyard pool, Christine was able to enjoy sunbathing and shopping and cooking for friends and family, and in general, just living the dream. Peter had a little spaniel named Beezlebus, who he adored, and in 1970, they welcomed a daughter named Andrea. On July 18, 1973, Christine and Peter had guests visiting from Germany, five of them to be precise. Peter and his guests had spent a large portion of the day taking them shopping for Canadian souvenirs. In their absence, Christina had sunbathed by the pool and visited with a neighbor for a bit. Peter and their guests arrived back at the house around 4 p.m. and Christine made everyone dinner. During dinner, one of their guests complained that she hadn't been able to find a pair of the leather indigenous moccasins that she really badly wanted. So Peter insisted that they go back out and try again. So everyone again piled into their Mercedes and left for downtown, leaving Christine to clean up from dinner and put little Andrea down to bed. At 9.45, Peter rounded the circular drive to a very dark house and was about to pull into the garage when he suddenly slammed on the brakes and exclaimed, Oh my God, at the open garage doorway in front of him. Christine was laying face down on the garage floor in a pool of fresh blood around her head that was creeping in a macabre river towards the entrance to the garage. Her hands were folded under her and one of her silver sandals had come off her foot. Her blonde hair was matted and blackened with drying blood with bits of grey matter leaking from her shattered skull. His guests were of course shocked, terrified and ran inside to look for Andrea who was found in the living room watching cartoons, thankfully oblivious to the horror that was outside. Peter called the police at 9.51. 911 service had just begun in 1972, so it's not clear if he used that service or called the police station. But either his Hungarian accent or his description of what he had found, the call was put in as a possible suicide. But when two officers arrived on the scene, Chris O'Toole and Barry King, It was clearly a homicide, and a vicious one at that. Christine was sporting a variety of bruises and a very large and gaping head wound on the back of her head. Based on the freshness of the blood around her, she had been killed perhaps only minutes before Peter and his entourage had returned home. Blood spatter on the Cadillac, still parked on the other side of the garage and the walls, pointed to being bludgeoned with something like a hammer or a tire iron, and repeatedly. Peter's behavior arose suspicion from the minute they arrived. For one, he kept insisting that she must have been reaching for something and fell, and that it must have been an accident, even though any bystander with an ounce of sense would have seen that it was clearly a beating. Then he was angry that they weren't putting her into an ambulance, despite the fact that her head had been mangled to the point that she was long past any hope. He even said, quote, "'Can't you get her out of here?' End quote. Perhaps a lost-in-translation thing with his native language being Hungarian, but when the officer started to ask him questions about when and how he had found her, etc., he said, Can we do this later? There's just too much excitement. So we're not off to a good start for Peter. But he had a pretty good alibi in that he was out on a shopping trip and everyone with him saw Christina alive and well just before they left. As is routine in any investigation, all of the people in attendance were whisked off to the police station for questioning, and Peter's cousin Stephen came to pick up little Andrea. No one in attendance was suspicious, so there was no reporting on any of their interviews. But Peter gave a rather odd interview. It also didn't help that he had came off as arrogant and very demandy. Peter blurted out that his and Christine's marriage was rocky. 
like teetering on a cliff of divorce Rocky, and he had a $1 million insurance policy on her. A kind of strange thing to throw out there right off the bat, but Peter was an odd duck. But he also had an airtight alibi. Peter was questioned just after midnight on the night of Christine's death. The next afternoon, he put his very slick lawyer, John Pomerant, on a $15,000 retainer. Bill Taggart, the superintendent of criminal investigations, was brought in to help with the investigation. He read the autopsy report, and that autopsy report revealed that Christine had suffered at least seven heavy blows to the head, and that she had tried to defend herself because she had a huge gash on her thumb, which they felt was a defensive wound. And her death had not been quick. She had struggled to breathe. The autopsy revealed that she had a large amount of blood in her lungs. Christine was laid to rest, and Peter, being Peter, was so cheap he negotiated with the florist for a better price on her bereavement flower arrangement. He tried to save face when the OPP offered a $3,000 reward for information that would lead to an arrest in the case, so Peter added $10,000 to that. One of the things that he actually didn't mention to O'Toole and King was that he was currently having an affair with a woman named Maria Hunt. Christine's neighbor, Joan Tennant, gave them that little bit of information. It seems that Christine wasn't happy in the marriage either and had confided to her that she had found love letters between the two of them and was considering divorce but wanted to ensure she would get custody of Andrea. But she also confided in her that she was a bit worried that he wouldn't let her go so easily because she knew too much about some of his shady business tactics. This Marina Hunt that he was having an affair with was actually a woman that he had met shortly before he met Christine. He had met her at a party in Vienna, but she wasn't as smitten with him as he was with her, at the time anyways, and rebuked his offer of marriage. So he had married Christine instead, but remained in love with Marina. On a whim, he had reached out to her somewhat recently and re-sparked their connection. She was scheduled to return to Canada basically to stay, because Peter had convinced her he was divorcing Christina only weeks after Christine had suddenly died, which worked out very well for Peter since he didn't have to divorce her and pay for pesky lawyers and alimony. Taggart, O'Toole, and King are all pretty much convinced that this was a murder-for-hire plot, but again, they don't have any hard evidence. And then comes in a phone call from a woman claiming that her boyfriend had been offered money to kill Christine by none other than Peter. And who was this boyfriend of hers? Shaba Salagi. Shaba was Peter's friend from back in Vienna. In 1965, Peter had sponsored him to come to Canada, and for a time, he had lived with Peter and Christina. Taggart couldn't wait to talk to Shaba and tracked him down at the pizza place where he was working. A very nervous Shaba was brought in for questioning, and he immediately spilled the beans. All the beans. It turns out Peter had been trying to get Shaba, his trusted friend, even though Shaba had grown a bit weary of Peter's arrogant blabberings, to kill Christine since shortly after they were married. It seems every time Peter and him talked, he had some new plan on how he could make it look like an accident or what kind of weapon would be good and whatnot. Now, Shaba never had any intention of ever going through with his crazy schemes and plans, but let's not go sainting him just yet. He also never warned Christine that she might be in danger, and he never went to the police about any of it until they came to him, despite the fact that Christine had been nothing but good and kind to him. So, this being the 1970s, they wiretapped his phone and told Shaba to keep talking to him. 
Peter didn't have a clue and blathered on in Hungarian to Shaba about all kinds of things, including telling Shaba to never take a lie detector test and to shut up to the police. And then, much to the investigator's delight, he told Shaba in Hungarian, which he figured the police didn't understand, like translators weren't a thing. And it also helped that one of the investigators happened to be Hungarian. Anyways, he told him that he was very upset that his contractor, which he has to this day never named, had screwed up and didn't make it look like an accident like he was supposed to. So a surprised 41-year-old Peter was arrested and charged with first-degree murder for the murder of murder for hire of his wife, Christine. But he was granted $75,000 bail and released. Mostly so they could continue to wiretap his phone and try to get the name of the hired hitman. He only had to report to the courts once a week while he waited for his trial. During this time, Marina made her trip to Canada to stay with Peter, whom apparently now she loved and wanted to be with. While waiting for the trial to start, police got a call that a man named Lazo Effer, a Hungarian who had been given a life sentence but escaped custody and had just been killed in a police shootout, which wouldn't have been important except that they searched his apartment and they found a piece of paper with Peter and Detective Taggart's names written on it. So maybe this was the guy that had killed Christine. Maybe. We'll see. Peter's trial started in September 1974 and would be one of the longest trials in Canadian history, lasting 11 weeks and a bit of a circus. Peter's lawyer, Joe Pomerant, wasn't very well liked by the jury. He was one of those over-the-top drama types. The prosecutor, John Greenwood, up until the day the trial had started, had never practiced criminal law, and the witnesses called bordered on the bizarre. At the start of the trial, all the prosecution really had was the hours of tapes with Shaba and a lot of he's kind of an asshole, so he probably did it. And Joe, for the defense, was going to throw everyone he could under the bus, including Christine herself. When Shaba did testify, he told the jury that Peter had told him to shoot Christina. But at the last minute, Shaba's girlfriend had showed up and he didn't do it. Peter was furious when Christina showed up at the house without a scratch on her. And this was only two days before her actual murder. Some of the less unusual witnesses was a 17-year-old girl named Vivica, who had been one of the house guests that had been shopping with Peter the day of her murder. She said that she had thought of Peter like an uncle, but it had made her uncomfortable that day when she found herself alone with him and he told her that his marriage was in trouble and he was having an affair. She said his behavior was certainly odd. Their housekeeper testified that the marriage was a mess. Lots of fighting and that Peter had yelled at Christine a lot over money and was very possessive and jealous. This housekeeper, it turns out, was engaged at the time to Shava. Then the prosecution called a guy named Frank Stark. Frank told the court that he had been told by Peter to find someone to kill his wife. Under pressure, he told him that he'd found a guy, one Imra Olenik, otherwise known as the Duck, to the Hungarian Mafia. Now, Stark said that he'd picked Imra because, although he was a thief, he wasn't a killer, so he knew he wouldn't go through with it. So Frank took him money that Peter had provided, conveniently wrapped in blueprints from one of his building development projects, Imre took the money and fled to Hungary, double-crossing Peter. The defense then called a police informant that came into court with a white bag over his face to testify that Imre had in fact killed Christine, but not because he had been hired to do so by Peter, just because he did, and had returned to Canada just for the purposes of murdering her. Police did later track Imre down in Hungary to question him, but under strange circumstances, 
he suffered a massive aneurysm and died during the interview. So they never did get the version of the story out of him. And if he was in fact in Hungary during her murder, he was only 39 years old. In the middle of the trial, for reasons I haven't been able to confirm, Peter's bail was revoked and he was put in custody. If I had to guess, I would think it was because the judge decided it was a good idea to sequester the jury from all of the media, and it wouldn't exactly be fair to do that to law-abiding good citizens while Peter is walking about free and clear. So the next crazy witness Joe called was a serial killer named Henry Joseph Williams. Despite Christine having died with a very different M.O. than Henry's murders, they decided that he might have done it which kind of made Joe look silly when Henry readily admitted in graphic details to the four women he had raped and murdered and then unequivocally said he did not kill Christine. Christine had also never been sexually assaulted. Then they called a prize fighter and everyday thug Joe DiNardo. He testified that Christine had hired Laszlo Effer, the one that had the note in his apartment with Peter and Detective Taggart's names on it, but she had changed her mind and fired him and he had killed her in a rage. Not an easy story to cooperate with him also being dead, but he was nonetheless completely chewed up and spit out by the prosecution as a liar and a bit of an idiot. Then Joe decided that giving a four-hour long-winded and angry closing statement berating Christine and saying she was the one that wanted Peter dead was a good idea. By this time, the jury was done. It had been 11 weeks after all of all of this nonsense and they quickly convicted him of first-degree murder with eligibility for parole after 10 years. We didn't have the 25-year mandatory period until later. Andrea was sent to live with Peter's cousin Stephen and his family, and Marina went back to Vienna. They have never identified who actually did the killing. All of Peter's appeals were denied, including the Supreme Court of Canada, who Joe had tried to convince the excessive media coverage and late sequestering of the jury required a new trial. Shaba went into witness protection, and Peter took up residence at the Millhaven Penitentiary Maximum Security Prison. And that might have been it, but not for Peter. In 1977, he launched a civil suit against the insurance company who refused to give him the $1 million payout to a convicted murderer. He let that trial drag on, bringing back most of the same crazy witnesses. Uh, he did take a short break from the trial while he recovered from a beating he received in prison, but he was bound and determined to get his money. That civil matter dragged on for years. In 1983, ten years after the murder, Peter was transferred to a medium security prison and awarded day parole. He was spending his days at a halfway house and looking forward to getting full parole down the road. He put the house in Mississauga where Christine met her untimely death on the market. Not a lot of buyers for a notorious murder house, though. Then, in 1993, something interesting happened. Three separate fires happened at the house, and while investigating them, this guy, Tony Preston, comes up, and he says, Yes, I burnt the house. Peter Demeter paid me to. So they start the wiretaps again, and this time known as Operation Dragon, and they discovered not only had Tony been paid to burn the house down for the insurance money, after he did that, he was to kidnap Stuart Demeter, who was the teenage son of Stephen Demeter. Peter's own cousin. Stuart was to be kidnapped, tortured, his actual instructions were to torture him, and then kill him even if Stephen paid the ransom. Why? Because Stephen had custody of Andrea and Peter blamed him for turning his daughter Andrea against him. But Tony went to the police instead. Then, instead of letting that foiled plan die, 
He then hired a guy named Mike Lane to rent a van and line it with plastic and lure Stuart to it where Peter would shoot him and then Mike could dismember his body so it couldn't be identified. Then Mike was to phone Stephen with a ransom letter that Peter had pre-written and if all of that worked out, he might get him to kidnap the daughter of one of the insurance execs so that they would pay out that pesky claim he was suing over. Needless to say, he was charged with three counts of arson and two counts of counseling to commit murder, and he lost his insurance civil claim and was given an additional two life sentences. Peter claimed he was framed by the police. To top that off, he was forced to pay the insurance company's legal fees. So, because his new lawyer knew that he was having some financial troubles, she requested an order to have his remaining assets frozen to ensure that she would get paid. For that betrayal, Peter turned to his new girlfriend, who was kind of hoping he was going to be getting out on parole, Lisa Ross, who was 29 years old. He told her to hide all his assets and cash in his stocks. He also told her to hire his former cellmate, Peter Winstanley, to kidnap her daughter and kill her if he had to. For that, he would get $25,000 and another $5,000 if murder was necessary. Winstanley also went toot sweet to the police. So Peter received another two more life sentences, so that's five in total if you lost count. And at that trial, the judge said, quote, Your evil knows no bounds. It never rests. It never ends. In my opinion, this man should never, ever, ever be released on parole. Whether or not you are inherently evil, I do not know. But you ooze evil out of every pore and contaminate everyone around you. Then, all was quiet until 2006, when the feds requested a DNA sample from him under an updated law that they could request DNA from anyone convicted of murder or manslaughter or a sex crime before the year 2000 for their database. He claimed it was harassment. And he lost. As of the last report that I could find in 2020, he was at that time 87 years old and residing at the Bath Institute. He has survived cancer two heart attacks, and a stroke. In 2019, when he tried to apply for parole again, he said that he would never have hired someone to kill his wife because he was too frugal, and killing someone in your house lowers the property value. The board responded, quote, Your history of counseling others to seek revenge for you makes you more of a risk of racism than your age and physical ability to harm others would suggest. It is the board's opinion that you will present an undue risk to society if released. As far as I know, at the time of this recording, he is still alive. Now, if we really want to talk about torture, we need to talk about Andrea, because no one other than Christine paid more of a price for all of this than her. Andrea was three and a half years old when her mother was ordered to be killed by her own father. But she wasn't aware of what had happened, and no one told her as a way of protecting her. But no one told her anything. So when she went to live with Peter's cousin Stephen and his wife Marjorie, she was raised believing that Steve and Marge were her mom and dad, and that their son Stuart was her brother. I mean, I kind of get it. Growing up knowing your mom was murdered by your dad, that completely would suck and really screw you up. But it's a risky move to live a lie like that because the truth is usually revealed at some point and then there's this level of betrayal from not being told the truth on top of all of it. And that's exactly what happened. When she was only nine years old, one of her classmates, who obviously was an aspiring murder junkie, uh, but who really needed to better consider her audience, 
ran up to Andrea with a picture in a book of Christine's bloody and battered body, and the gig was up. Now, as you can imagine, this completely sent little nine-year-old Christine into a bit of a tailspin. Being confused and wigged out a bit, she started to visit her dad in prison. But Peter being Peter was all smoke and mirrors, and I would imagine this deeply distressed Andrea, who didn't really have a chance to remember her mum. After about three years of awkward and stressful visits, she wrote to him that she didn't want to see him anymore. And of course, Peter blamed Stephen for this estrangement rather than his own actions, and Andrea was later taken aside by being pulled out of school to be told of Peter's plot against the only father and brother that she had ever really known. So Andrea, who inherited her mum's good looks, developed PTSD and her life started to spin out of control as a young woman. In 2017, now going by Andrea Scratch, she told CBC that she now really only wants to hear Peter's name again if it's to tell her that he's dead. She told CBC that, quote, I was a very lost human being for many years. I either couldn't remember what happened that the night before or worse, I couldn't remember all too well. She was, as you can imagine, a pretty messed up kid and once even tried to <clears throat> burn her adoptive parents' house down. Quote, my whole life, it was about me. It took a lot to make me healthy, end quote. In 2004, she was caught drunk driving with her daughter in the car and lost custody, which she realizes was the right thing for the courts to do, but it was one of her biggest regrets. She now is sober and says, quote, I am a different person today than I was. You live your life the best you can, live it, and then share it. I'm going to help as many human beings as possible. She hopes one day that her daughter will try to find her when she ages out of care. Uh, but the one thing that really bothers Andrea still is that not many people ask about her mum. They only really ask about her father. She wishes that she could remember more about her, because right now all she can really recall is that she smelled nice. And that was the crazy murder of Christine Demeter. Believe it or not, I am really only skimmed the surface of this crazy story. If you want a very detailed account of the story... Uh, Catherine Fogarty from Story Hunter has done a five-part investigative piece in season two of that podcast, which I believe is already in its 28th season now or something like that. I am back again next week with another case. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Listening.